Hello and welcome to Design Unmuted, a podcast that centers marginalized voices in design, art, and all things creative. I am your host, Divine, a landscape designer and social critic. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Design Unmuted. My guest today is Crystal Parabu. Crystal is super awesome, super cool. She's an art historian, curator, community builder, Afrofuturist, communication specialist, activist. She is straight up dope. And Ooh. I'm going to let her introduce herself to us and tell us all the great things she does. Oh my God, what an intro! <laughs> I'm honored. <laughs> thank you, Ms. Divine. Oh, thank you for being here with me. I'm so happy to be here. This is literally the first podcast I've ever done. So hi. Hey. Awesome. Yeah, no, that was a pretty good summary, pretty good introduction. But I guess if I just go into a bit more detail. Um, yeah, so trained art historian, um, specializing in art curation. So I work as both an independent curator um, who puts on my own exhibitions within the city. um, And I also do some curatorial projects for different organizations as well. Like right now, um, the Vancouver Mural Festival, I am both the project manager and lead curator for the Black Strathcona Resurgence Project. Which is basically, yeah, which is basically our way of reclaiming Black visibility that has been erased in this uh, city colonially known as Vancouver through public art and placemaking and murals and just reviving Black identity and creating more of a concentrated hub for Black identity to exist in this city. So that's a lot of fun. Um, Yeah, I'm also, I also am a writer um mostly short essays that are either critiquing um art or politics um my latest piece i guess was published in canadian art in their latest print issue called frequencies i think it's on stands until june 17th so there's still time to acquire that and it really sucks because canadian art i think they're actually going under for a bit as well um due to mm. lack of funding and COVID. So please support them. Um, let's see, what else am I doing? Um, oh, I am also currently um, involved in an anti-racist initiative. So as a response to both COVID and um, the rise in some social justice issues, specifically the Black Lives Matter movement and the Land Back movement, um, a lot of arts leaders, BIPOC arts leaders, came together to create um, an anti-racist initiative called Sector Equity for Anti-Racism in the Arts, also known as CIRA for short. And essentially, we spent the last like almost year uh, raising funds across different arts institutions um, for BIPOC artists who have been affected the most um, by COVID in terms of the arts industry and who have the least resources to accessing grants. And um, so really, that was... Um, a fund that was set up not only to help them, but also to really point to the inadequacies of funding models in arts institutions across BC, but also providing arts institutions with a tangible way of um, kind of decolonizing their own practices. Because, you know, everyone made solidarity statements with 
for instance, the BLM movement, everyone posted a black square and they were everywhere. But mm-hmm. it's like, okay, where where are your actual like tangible um, practices in terms of decolonizing your arts institutions? And so we raised just over 320K, which was really amazing. Nice. Yeah, so there's that. Um, also work very closely with the Hogan's Alley Society with their board mm-hmm. um, on different community projects. Oh, I'm also starting my own communications business called Diadem Communications. So, yeah, I kind of nice. just yeah, I'm I do I'm the type of person where I really I'm just such a curious mind and I always love learning and evolving. And so I if I'm not having my hand in different types of projects, I just I'm not feeling fulfilled. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know. Now, would you say that your activism intersects with your work? Oh my God, a hundred percent. And and you know what? It wasn't even something I was cognizant of until probably like the last couple years, to be honest. Coming to Vancouver mm-hmm. because I'm from Toronto slash the GTA originally, um, and it's a lot more diverse there. Like you, mm-hmm. you have some of everything there, and so coming to Vancouver I, and being in predominantly white spaces, um, especially when I was uh, working both out of and at a co-working space in Vancouver, that's when I really realized, okay, my activism is coming out like unconsciously um, mm-hmm. through all of my work that I do because I, I'm realizing that's just who I am as a person, like justice, and really um, standing up for marginalized voices is just one of my values. Community is my value. And so right. that just naturally comes out in everything that I do. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because I uh, posted a couple of days ago on IG a quick uh, poll question on whether uh, people thought that they were, were defined by their work, like their identity was so tied to their work versus mm-hmm. work being just a money maker. Mm-hmm. And it was almost split, but there was uh, a higher percentage of people who were uh, like saying that their work defined them. Wow. And the reason that I was asking that is because I find that myself, I'm lead more towards that. Yeah. And it's becoming extremely difficult to maintain my mental health. Yeah. When I'm engaging with these things and whether, and so I I just wanted to have a chat with you because I imagine like for yourself, if your activism intersects with your work, how do you maintain healthy boundaries and how do you protect yourself? Oh my God. What a great and loaded question. So (laughs) sorry. (laughs) No, I, I love it. Um, well, one thing I'll start by saying is it's a process that I'm continuously learning how to do. Like, I don't have all the answers for that. But I have um, recently um, been noticing that I take on a lot of projects, A, because I really want to make an impact and do them, and B, because I always feel like I have an obligation to help people if they're asking me Mm -hmm. for it. So one thing I'm learning to do is being okay with saying no to people. And that's, um, and it doesn't have to be 
perceived in a negative way, like really taking away the negativity that's like loaded in the word no. And, you know, like if I just being realistic with myself, if I don't have the capacity mm -hmm. to do something, my mental health comes first. And in order for me to be able to fulfill to the best of my ability and put the like m the crystal magic on the works that I do in order for me to do that, I have to be able to be working at full capacity. So I'm kind of working through learning how to say no. Um, but, you know, it's really interesting that you ask this because I've been thinking a lot lately about how much colonialism has informed and capitalism really has informed um, the sense of time that we have and, and how mm -hmm we always need to be on the go and that means that we're being successful or we always have to get back to people speedy time because that's just how it works and really trying to decolonize my sense of time while still <laughs> maintaining being a professional in people's eyes because we're all that's very much still embedded in the way that we pursue our work um right Right. So that's something I'm trying to bring a bit more um, awareness around and also just more awareness around ableism itself. And, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that like we should all those who are able bodied need to kind of be more aware of the fact that it's a privilege for us to be able to do the work in the capitalist driven manner that we've been taught. And so kind of being cognizant of giving people space who have invisible disabilities that we don't necessarily see like mental health. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that could have an impact on responding to emails right away or um, having anxiety around tackling a project and maybe not knowing how to communicate with someone. And so, yeah, I'm trying to do all those things um, at once, not only for my own mental health and the way mm -hmm. that I navigate my work, but to raise that awareness in the communities and groups that I'm working within. That's awesome. I actually just last month for the first time uh, told my employer that I needed to take a mental health day. Wow. And the, I was so nervous. Like I was so afraid to just to say, say like, I didn't want to say I want to take a sick day because I've done it before where just say, I'm not feeling good, mm -hmm. right? Where that's so easy to say, but it's like, no, I was feeling overwhelmed. I, yeah. I was tired and I just needed time. And I remember uh, like, uh, I was like, oh, are they going to think that I'm like, I'm not able to handle the job mm -hmm. and and all that. Um, yep. Yep. It felt good to do it, but like, I, I still feel a little bit of, I'm not completely okay with it. Like being like, I, if I, if I wake up, I have like food poisoning or something, mm -hmm. there's no doubt in my mind that I'll be like, I'm not coming to work. Exactly. But when it comes to mental health, like there's still so much that we need to do. Like I'm a big advocate for it, but even like when it comes to myself, like when I realize how difficult it is for me and then like this perception of like wanting to maintain this ability to keep going and, and be productive mm -hmm. and be good. And it's like, mm -hmm. no, it's, it's been difficult. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and it should be okay for you in your vulnerability to feel good about 
about making those decisions. Uh, you know what I mean? And but the problem is, like we're we've defined as a society success in you being able to accomplish so much on the go without taking the breaks. And it looks like a weakness mm -hmm. if you do take the breaks because you need them for your mental health. And then you add the additional barrier of mental health itself being so stigmatized still to this right. day, you know what I mean? And so a lot of people just keep those things silent and then suffer consequences um, as a result, which isn't really cool. Like there was actually... Actually, I just want to tell like a really quick story of this guy. Of course, go ahead. Yeah, there. Okay, so there's this um, local artist in Vancouver. Well, okay, he's not local. He's actually from Europe, um, and mm -hmm. he's a photographer. And I remember I was helping another curator with a project, and I had reached out to um, him because we decided that we wanted to work with him as an artist. But this, this was a project that was still in its very like early draft proposal stages. And so it was mm -hmm. us just really pitching it to um, the city of Vancouver or TransLink, one of the two at the time, I don't remember which. Um, yeah, we, we, it was just pitching it. So like nothing was solidified, but um, I remember engaging with this artist and just letting him know, yeah, so this is just a pitch. Are you interested? And they were like, yes. And of course, this TransLink or the city, they took forever to get back to us on whether the project was even happening. Plus, another curator was actually leading this project. It wasn't really me. Um, so mm -hmm. I wasn't. So it took a long time. And then I remember them just like really snapping at me and being like, you know what? Like, I don't want to make you feel bad, but I, I just don't trust you professionally. Like, this is just not the way I work. I'm used to like like hearing things right away and you know you've, you're taking forever to get back to me so I'm too good like I'm never gonna work with you like like you know and then wow. that really made me think like hey not only like do I now look at him and his art like really differently <laughs> but, <laughs> but it really made me think about how much we are stuck in this system of of really having to enforce the needs and drives of capitalism and colonialism to be successful. Like there was no conversation mm -hmm. around, okay, um, you know, why were there delays or, you know, how is your capacity? Like, we don't, are you okay? Like we don't talk to each other like that in, in the professional world. We, it's more just mm -hmm. like, give me what I need and give me the money and let's go. And it's just, yeah, I just, and that really made me, that was really the start of me unpacking how I'm navigating in the community work that I do and making sure that that level of awareness is, you know, we all have, that we all have it as we're navigating it. So it's a process. Oh, totally. And so what are some of the other barriers that you are facing in your work as you try to carve spaces for Black artists and uh, to decolonize art spaces. Mm -hmm. Systemic racism, really, because it's just so deeply ingrained and it comes in so many different forms. You know, like if we talk about physical space itself um, and both physical and the social spaces of a predominantly all white organization, like if I'm coming into it to do some work and carve out space as the person who's leading that process of really decolonizing the space so that I can make room for other black folk and marginalized folk, 
it's I take the brunt of of being hit with the process of unpacking all of that. So there's always the defensiveness that comes with whiteness. There's always the pushback that comes with whiteness. There's always the um, unintentionally um, unintentional impacts that emotional impacts and trauma mm -hmm. impacts and triggered impacts that I had to deal with from white people in these white spaces um, to tr as the leader to try and dismantle them. And, and that it just accumulates. And so initially, like eventually just takes its own emotional toll in and of itself, but I have right. to find ways of coping with it to get the work done that needs to be done. Cause otherwise we will never have access to these spaces if people aren't on the front lines, you know what I mean? Right. Um, and it could even be something as simple as, um, you know, making sure that like, like if, if your if your entire organization is white and you're starting to invite BIPOC people in, like doing things like, you know, starting off your meetings with like a land acknowledgement or mm -hmm. doing things that, you know, will make these spaces comfortable instead of just assuming that they are now fitting into what you have determined as um, at the status quo and, and, and what is normalized in your spaces, so to speak. So it's a lot of work. It really, really is because it comes in every single form, socially, yeah. economically, um, you know, not being listened to, not being taken seriously, um, being mm -hmm. used as like tokenized, like for, for, that you know, yeah. And, and a lot of, and, and then being denied, like, and then there being denial around that, you know what I mean? So like, you have to do the added work of not only bearing the emotional toll of experiencing this in your attempts to decolonize, but you have to, you have the added extra labor of having to educate as to why their actions are harmful in this moment. And sometimes they listen and sometimes mm -hmm. they don't. Either way, they're both really emotional, especially when they don't though, because then that's when the racism really comes out. <laughs> yeah. And there are endless stories I can tell about that in this city. <laughs> but. Yeah, I find like even finding the courage to call them to call some of those situations out is you know, like sometimes you're like, do I even want to start this? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And you know what? I'm like people who know me know I'm the type of person who I I will call stuff out. And that's why mm -hmm. I I do tend to take on that role as being a leader to carve out these spaces because I know that's just who I am. But there was mm -hmm. a time, there was a time like a few years ago, even just a couple years ago, where um, I would be in certain either spaces or relationships or friendships where I feel like I had to really tone that side of me down in order to, mm. because I, you, you, you think like they want you to be thinking these things, like you're too much, you know, it's, it's this, like yeah. you're, you're just causing problems. It, it's like that angry black woman trope that is, you know, mm -hmm. it's just shoved down your throat. Like if you speak out about anything, if you even attempt at asserting any kind of like leadership or confidence, you're sassy, you're, you're bossy, right. you're, you're aggressive, aggressive. You're always mm -hmm. aggressive. You can't just be intelligent. You can't just be like, damn, like a boss with amazing leadership skills. No, you're yeah. always all the negative stuff, right? Um, and so the amount of times I've been called sassy, I was like, I am like, listen, oh my God, you, girl, just because you don't like what I'm saying, right? You don't right? get it. 
no, let me let oh. me tell you. I say and I say this all the time. If I were a white man and I said the things I said, I would be the most respected person in the community. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sassy. No one calls white men sassy and they're the sassiest people on this planet. If we're, if we're really deconstructing the definition of sassy, white men are the mm. sassiest people, but you never, <laughs> but you never hear anyone call a white man sassy. It's always anytime a black woman is asserting herself in any type of way, really just like being an intelligent, amazing human being it's always portrayed in a negative light. And so I get hit with that constantly. And so there was a time in my life, like I said, where I toned that down a lot, but then I realized like, that's when I was the most miserable. And that's when I realized I was actually hurting myself because I was accepting more abuse than I should have. Um, and so right. that's, that's when I was like, you know what? No, if this means I have to not be in this space anymore, if this means that these people have to look at me in a negative light, I don't care because I'm doing what's right for me, for my people, for my communities. And that's just who I am. Yeah, totally. And also I think this whole thing about the angry black woman, first of all, <laughs> black women, black people are allowed the full spectrum of human emotions, including okay. anger. Okay. And second of all, are we, do we not have reasons to be angry? <laughs> like, <is> it, <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I, I think anger is the right response because if if a normal person who doesn't get get angry under certain circumstances, you need to question, you know, yes. how well I process things. Yes, one hundred percent. Black people aren't angry enough, in my damn opinion. So everybody can take <laughs> a seat. But no, honestly, everything you just said, Divine, has so much merit to it. But that that's that's the whole point. Is Black people are not humanized by non-black people. And that's just across, that's across the board. Whether it's done consciously or not, the dehumanization of black people is just so rampant. And that is why we are not allowed to feel the full spectrum of emotions. That is why we are being labeled these negative labels. Because we are not seen as humans, therefore we are not seen as being allowed to act as human. Oh. Okay, let's switch up the gears here. <laughs> I really want to uh, uh, see. This is my side of like trying to like pretend like things are fine because I, you know, I'm like it's hard. It's hard. You know, man. like yeah, I, like I don't want to like get into that dark space. It just like it yeah. like it takes so much out of me to get I out know, of it. I know. I know. Um, I want to talk about Afrofuturism with you because I know. That is a big part of your work. It is a big part of my work as well. But mm -hmm. as a historian and as somebody who's spoken publicly about this, mm -hmm. I want you to give us a little, just a little note about Afrofuturism for the people who are late to the party. <laughs> really late to the, the party was yesterday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, okay, Afrofuturism, honestly, in in essence, is it's it's a world that is being built by Black people for Black people. So it's totally decolonized. It's spaces that is made to enhance Black, black brilliance, Black people who can just thrive 
not just in the stereotypical ways that we are expected to thrive. Like a black man mm -hmm. should be a basketball player. So let's put up all these basketball hoops for them or they're going to be a rapper. It's like, those are your two choices as a black man. No, it's designing these spaces that can foster black men who can be coders, who can go into tech, who can, who, mm -hmm. who, who are imagining a life of, of science fiction, of technology, like all of it merged together, art driving, like, you know, innovative forms of art, creating innovative forms of art, really driving forth social impact within black communities, like a world that is built by black people for black people to thrive in, in every single sector. Like, you want a black mm -hmm. astronaut? Let's freaking build a future where a black boy can grow up, where a black girl can grow up, where a black, however they identify, can grow up, and they can just feel like, I can become an astronaut because my environment mm -hmm. tells me that I can. My environment that I see myself reflected in is telling me that I can. It's not telling me I can't. It's not telling me that I, I should be doing this or this. This environment is allowing me to thrive. That is what Afrofuturism is. It is living in a world that was not built under colonialism um, for European settlers, for anyone of European descent, and we just happen to fit into wherever we can fit in. No, it was, it's built for us. That is what it mm -hmm. is, in summary. And it comes in many forms. We could talk about Afrofuturism and the intersection of art for like an hour we can talk about afrofuturism and the intersection of science for like another hour like it's it's mm -hmm. it's in every facet for of, for blackness yeah. to thrive we can wear our afros and our natural hair wherever we go and not feel like we're walking like what do you call it like like little like animals at the zoo and people oh, are yeah, yeah. touching it no it's normalized for totally kink to do its freaking thing these curls mm -hmm. to be as huge and however it needs to be like this is our environment that is afrofuturism in yes. in, in essence <laughs> that's awesome now i love i love afrofuturism i have been integrating it into my work mm -hmm. and it's serving as the essence through which i move and envision all the work that i'm doing in the future and yeah, I'll be sharing some stuff uh, with you later. Yes. But I know you're a huge Harry Potter fan. And I, I want know. to bring <laughs> I want to bring Afrofuturism at the intersection of uh, Harry Potter. Oh my god. And I want to know, as an Afrofuturist and as Crystal Parabu, which house would you be in? Which of the four houses? Or maybe would you like make your own house or would you combine them? Like, tell me. <laughs> Oh my god. Okay. I'm sorry, but I'm just so happy right now and nerding out hardcore. <laughs> You're like, this is just amazing. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna first preface with a story and then answer mm -hmm. go into answering questions. So do you know the app Clubhouse? Yes. Okay, so I've been a okay, I've been a Harry Potter fan since I was ten years old. I've always been Harry Potter's age. So when it first came out, I was ten years old, the same age as um Harry, ten eleven. Nice. And yeah, so I've always been a fan, but I've never like met another like black person who was like into Harry Potter the way that I am. So, anyways, Aww. on the Clubhouse app, there are there was like there's this Harry Potter group 
that I went in and there was like trivia every Saturday. And <laughs> <laughs> and there there was like a black girl in there. Um, Erica is her name. And she um, so we were competing and then she messaged me, she messages me after and she's like, Hey girl, um, so just so you know, we have a group called Black Hotties at Hogwarts, and it's where all <laughs> <laughs> it's where all these black nerds live. And we want you to join us. I was like, is this like awesome. a prank? What's happening? And so there's this whole Discord channel we have. There's this whole clubhouse ch- group we have called Black Ho- Unfriendly Black Hotties at Hogwarts. And I have so <laughs> I many it. new digital friends who are Black nerds obsessed with Harry Potter. And so I'm like living my like dream right now. Just so I just want- <laughs> I'm so happy for you. <laughs> um, and literally we talk every day about like the nerdiest Harry Potter things. But um, so to answer your question, and I'm actually going to be revealing a secret here, but everybody who knows me Drop knows. Drop all the secrets! <laughs> I'm dropping it! <laughs> all right. I just want to take a moment to thank the Real Estate Foundation of BC for sponsoring this episode of Design Unmuted. The Real Estate Foundation of BC is a philanthropic organization working to advance sustainable land use and real estate practices in British Columbia. They do this by funding projects, connecting people, and sharing knowledge. Their grants support not-for-profit organizations working to improve BC communities and natural environments through responsible and informed land use, conservation, and real estate practices. They're particularly interested in land use projects that contribute to the upholding of indigenous rights and title and racial equity and justice. You can learn more at www.refbc.com. Thank you for your support of Design Unmuted. Now, let's get back to it. Okay, <laughs> everybody who knows me knows that I've identified as a Slytherin. Okay. Oh, shit, okay. But, but wait, no, no, no. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you though. The secret is, because the house that you really are is the house you take on Pottermore, now known as wizardingworld.com. Like, you have to answer a series of questions, and it tells you what house you are. So I'm actually, and I've always been since I was a kid, a Ravenclaw. (laughs) And I've I've only ever told one person that, my friend Veronica. But I've always identified, because this is what I say. I'm a Ravenclaw, mm. but society made me a Slytherin. So I've always just oh. been. As, yeah. So so what it is, the Black Hotties taught me this. Your first house mm. is the one Pottermore told you you are. So I'm a Ravenclaw. And your secondary okay. house is the one you self-identify as. So I'm a Ravenclaw oh. and, se- and Slytherin secondary is what I would say. Nice. Yeah. And, nice. and it's true. I am very much both. Like, um, I'm very, like, cerebral intellectual philosophical that's my ravenclaw side but then mm-hmm. i'm also very like grungy and like i have this like dark like punk rock side to me as well like they both coexist so yeah. it makes sense anyways that was my long nice. nerdy harry potter rant and i could do more of these i know you could <laughs> wait what house are you divine oh you know what i'll tell you what house you are you are oh, you tell me I, I i bet you i know what you are you're definitely, you're probably either Ravenclaw or Gryffindor. One of the two. Ravenclaw. Yeah. Okay. 
So I thought, <laughs> Ravenclaw first, but you're definitely a Gryffindor secondary, 100%. Oh, yeah? I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you are. You're like the hero. You're like the face of like a hero, the face of like someone who's brave and like chivalrous. Oh, damn, you're hacking me out. <laughs> I love this hype. <laughs> it's true. Look at this podcast, even, you know. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks. <laughs> I, I just like, I like, one of my friends is a huge Harry Potter fan, and she got me to take all this, like, yeah, you gotta know which house you're from. I'm like, I don't even know these things. <laughs> but then when I heard that you were a fan, I was like, I'll entertain you for this. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. This is the best part of the conversation so far. And you know what? It's so I funny. thought you'd enjoy it. Yes. But to tie this back into like blackness a little bit, um, I just want to like share that like, okay, so you haven't read the books, obviously. You haven't, right? No. No, no I've watched a few movies. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's this one character. Her name is Hermione Granger. So she's like one of the main of like the 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 main group of three she's like the the girl and she's yeah. supposed to be like this she's really smart but in the first book she was just when like she's first being described she was described as having like really like big bushy hair and like um just really smart and stuff and so reading it as a kid I pictured her like me, like I was you like, yourself. yeah, yeah. And then it's funny because when the movies came out, and then Emma Watson was basically casted as Hermione. I remember saying to my, that's when I realized to myself, I'm not the default. Like you know that that's when mm-hmm. like the world of colonialism starts to really manifest for you. Like it was that like obviously mm-hmm. it's that young for all of us. We see it in different ways, but for me it was like through literature because I always loved reading as a kid. And I remember just thinking, okay, I'm not the default. Like I need to stop picturing these characters as me because they're not written as me. And it was, Mm -hmm. it was really interesting. Yeah. Have you heard of NFTs? Oh, of course. Duh. Yeah. Well, you don't know. Some people are, you know, living, living uh, under the rocks. (laughs) I'm in the art I'm in the art world. Of course I've heard of another NFTs. I know. So I'm actually wondering, do you think that NFTs can help level up the playing field when it comes to uh, Black content creators, Black artists, but also finally stop the cultural appropriation of Black art? Mm-hmm. I don't think it will ever... S- the, the cultural appropriation of Black art will never stop because that's just it's like saying racism will stop and neither will but i do think it will put a band-aid on it for sure because the way that you have to legitimize nfts through that mint process it will help to say okay this is the original and it will also bring more black art and black people into the tech world where they're very limited already. And so I, mm-hmm. I, I, I really love, I really love that concept. And I, I think that a lot of black artists can thrive through NFTs a hundred percent. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, the, the more that I look into it, read up on it, I'm like, this, this is a great decentralized and way of engaging with the, with this space. A hundred percent. So Eurocentric and I'm, I, I hope that it keeps going in that direction. Yeah, me too. And it's really funny because when you think of the art market itself, like it's like a billion, 
billions and billions of dollars art market. I don't even know what the number is, like probably 35 billion or something. But it's it's like a whole other way of legitimizing art through NFTs because in the art market, it's like there's certain galleries and a certain group of powerful, mostly men who are responsible for saying, okay, this is like a legitimate original or this is what would mm-hmm. constitute as um, – like this art is wor- valued at this much because of its provenance or because of A, B, C, or D. Whereas with NFTs, it's such a more easy, accessible, and like you said, decentralized way of legitimizing art. And mm-hmm. so it's it's easier access for people who, it's, it's less gatekeeping because in the art market itself, yeah. it very much works like real estate. Like you buy art as an investment, like paintings or sculptures, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. But again, that value is valued based on who's previously owned it, which is known as provenance. And um, there's a lot of gatekeeping as to who like can be shown at auction or who could be shown at certain galleries. Whereas mm-hmm. in the digital realm with NFTs, it's like all you got to do is mint that shit yourself, market it yourself, find ways of doing it, and you're in. There's no gatekeeping. So it's right. yeah, and if it's people like it, it's like it speaks yeah. for itself. The, totally the is reduced. Yep, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, Crystal, why don't you share with us um, a little bit more about the Black Resurgence project you worked on this past summer, and uh, what that meant for you and the community? Yeah, so um, basically, the Black Strathcona Resurgence project was developed as a means of continuing um, work I was doing with the Vancouver Mural Festival in 2020. Um, I came on as a guest curator in 2020 and really my my curatorial vision was really centering more Black artists and specifically Black storytelling and education around Hogan's Alley. Um, And, you know, the community received it so well that um, we just decided to implement it into its own project, which is what came of BSRP. Um, and really in this approach, I wanted to expand more um, capacity building for black artists, but also black talent, black leadership, um, and kind of just black ownership altogether. So it was more than just hiring black artists to paint murals, but it was this, it was really this kind of reclaimage of um kind of ownership of identity ownership of of land of space um of autonomy and um education around identity so uh we had about 14 different artists participate um i was uh, a curator and designed the project and then uh chippo chippoziwa came on as an associate uh, curator as well um, and really it was just so beautiful to kind of have this BSRP family just grow and um, you know like everyone kind of getting to know each other in the process and uh, lifelong friendships that have lasted from that um, and then it was really powerful to see the type of murals that they produced and so I specifically curated my artists to be very um, diverse visually Um, diverse in their design because I wanted to show um, that black artistry like black black in general is not a monolith like it's very nuanced in identity in being Uh, therefore 
black artistry will also be very nuanced. Um, I wanted to kind of break any stereotypes of like what black art is supposed to look like is supposed to be. So we had artists who um, produced murals that were very kind of technical and realistic. Some were abstract, some were in between, some were very experimental um, and very much rooted in neo-expressionism, neo um, uh, Afrofuturism. Uh, and so kind of collectively you have this beautiful um, kind of outdoor gallery of really nuanced art and design by different black artists um, of different identities. So we had some who are from the Caribbean, some who are Canadian born, some who are uh, from Africa. Uh, so it was also really great to kind of showcase in addition to the different designs, uh, the different identities that were present as well. Um, and then it was really powerful kind of um, producing this project in Hogan's Alley in and of itself, because that that area, it's only in the last couple of years since, uh, since uh, the Black Lives Matter movement kind of really took off that people are really starting to kind of um, challenge their perceptions of what that the history of that area is like it's not just Chinatown it's not just Strathcona oh yeah there was a black community that used to live here and so that's significant and so that kind of dialogue is starting to be talked about now so it was really interesting kind of producing the project in this area where um, before it would have been all met with a lot of challenges which it still was um, in terms of not feeling like our black bodies like belonged there, but um, because the city is kind of going through its own process of re-educating itself on that area and Hogan's Alley and the first black community that migrated to Canada, um, it was kind of really powerful to see the support of the community, like people who would either drive in the alleys, uh, people who were living in the building that we were painting behind in Solheim Place, um, just, the kind of in commu greater community engagement, like the businesses would like bring some of the painters food. Like it was just really beautiful to kind of see this larger community form from it. And then another thing I'll add about the project is um, I also really wanted to make sure that um, because the area that we're working in um, does intersect with Chinatown and is ultimately on unsurrendered MST territories, so Musqueam, Squamish, and Sailor Tooth territories. I wanted to make sure there was at least some of that representation in the project as well. So kind of promoting like that intercultural solidarity, intercultural relations. So um, I had a couple um, artists of Chinese descent on board uh, and a Sailor Tooth artist, uh, Zach George, and also um, part Musqueam, part Shimishim artist. Uh, Chase Gray. Um, and then there was a huge solidarity mural that was created literally on the BC Hydro Marin substation building at the literal intersection of like Chinatown and Hogan's Alley um, by three different artists, a black artist, a Chinese artist, and then Chase Gray, um, uh, MSD artist. And it was just really beautiful to kind of have that as like the closing art piece to the whole project you know it's like now let's just go forward collectively like reclaiming our identity reclaiming our space and even though we're all oppressed in different ways because of uh colonialism because of systemic erasure systemic racism we can still move forward together in fighting this so um it was really powerful it was a really great experience in terms of working with the artists and 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 the property managers um, definitely met with a lot of challenges internally, um, for sure. 
um, which is something that art institutions just need to work on in general. But I was really proud of what was ultimately produced and the impact that it had on the community and the artists who were able to, especially the emerging ones, who were able to just get their name out there, kind of, you know, talk to the media. It was just really beautiful. Oh, it's amazing. That sounds so nice. And like some of those murals are just so uplifting. And I'm so glad that like you had such a great vision and really came through in the work that was kind of produced. And I kind of want to know, maybe for people who don't necessarily understand what um, art creation is, like for yourself, you weren't necessarily creating the art pieces, but can you kind of explain why it's important to have people like yourselves and people who represent, who come from the communities to be the ones curating for like something like this? Yeah, Um, so it definitely helps Um, In order for, I guess, some of these projects to really be impactful and hit home, there needs to at least be some kind of underlining vision. And for in order to have an underlining vision, there needs to be a fundamental understanding of a who these communities even are, what are their what are the intentions, um, both as a community, as individuals, as artists. Um, And I'm someone who has that understanding and so um, I was able to kind of use my ability as a curator to again say okay I want to strategically make sure we're curating artists who have different kind of design potentials but are still representative of this community um, who is really trying to fight for something um, moving forward and so yeah I think it's just really having those skills to kind of a have the vision but then also being able to put it all together and and have the skills to like really create that feeling of community and and i'm someone who i approach all the work that i do from a community building and anti-racist lens and so i really um i really like to make people feel like okay you're not i'm not just commissioning you for a work to do and then you go away we're creating something together like you know it's important to have that feeling of of comfort and making sure that people feel safe walking into an environment before they start doing things like all these little things matter um in order for this beautiful artwork to successfully be produced and read by the community and so um obviously in addition to my skills and experience i'm also someone who does continual research and is always continuously reading um about new concepts and and new and new ways of approaching um and i really approach my curation with like a curatorial activism approach as well so it's not it's more than just kind of taking colonial approaches to these projects but really making sure it's from more of an activist point of view so that we're criticizing these systems at the same time that we're working within them and really trying to show where they went wrong um, and how they can do better. So, yeah. That's amazing. And I also want to say that you are going to be leading the public art branch of the Black Indigenous Design Collective that we are working on together. And I'm wondering, given that um, this is kind of a platform where you can really take the leadership in terms of uh, the framework of this, what are some of the things you're excited about um, that uh, we are going to be working together to really make this um, kind of like different and more open and and equitable as opposed to maybe some, mm-hmm. some other spaces, some other conventional spaces as we know it? 
Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing that I'm really excited about is just working with a team. So like you, JB, Sierra, who I know right off the bat, like, we all have this like fund like this respect for each other so like i already feel like i'm walking into this extremely safe space where i feel respected where i where i share the same values as my colleagues and that may sound very little but that means a whole lot because if you're creating a safe space for someone to come into they can show up as their whole selves and then they can produce the best um, you know, the best, they can perform to the best of their abilities. And so I already am walking into Bitsy feeling that way. So I'm really excited about that. And then I'm also just really excited about um, being able to experiment with this program. Because um, like we were talking about before, other institutions where um, you would navigate projects like this, they're still very much rooted in colonial structures. But, you know, the first thing that I kind of did when developing this framework for the public art program was really making sure we identified what our values are. And that's, you know, some things like uh, decolonized structures of leadership. So ensuring that um, it's not about because you have this certain title that you get to make all the decisions. It's I'm someone who values conversations and um, hearing what people have to bring to the table as opposed to hierarchies. And that's everybody. Um, and, and really wanting to center um, MST voices, Black voices, BIPOC voices in general, um, and, and knowing that we can do it from our values that don't have to be challenged by typical colonial values. Like we are essentially setting the stage for what this is going to look like. And so I'm just so excited to be able to have the room to kind of implement that framework right off the bat and be supported by all of you guys who I'm working with. And then just have fun experimenting and pushing the boundaries of what like Afrofuturism could look like in public art, what MST futurism is going to look like. And, you know, I'm so excited to work with you on what like your design is going to be. And it's just, we're going to just have so much fun not being constrained and just being able to do everything from a community-based approach that is so inclusive, that is literally centering um, Black and Indigenous storytelling and identities and not having any of kind of the white colonialness, like interrupting it for any variety of reasons. So I'm just so excited. Yes, likewise, likewise. And for people who are listening, who might be really keen to support this vision and keen to support the public mm. art, what are some of the ways that uh, from someone who has expertise in this field, what are some of the ways that people can support not just like monetary kind of donations, which is a, kind of a pretty straightforward, but what, what are some other ways that people can support this? Um, well, first and foremost, I would say the number one way that you can support us is by um, anytime you see that we are announcing any kind of projects or any kind of news, please just feel free to share it with your network so that people can know that we exist and know of the work that we're doing. We want to make sure that we're building trust within our communities in addition to doing all the work we're doing. And so that really requires um, you guys kind of speaking on behalf of us. And so please do that. And then also, please just like um, anytime we, we launch any projects or we're offering um, uh, any kind of feedback on anything, like please just engage with us as much as you can because we want to make sure that we're representing the community and everything that we're doing, especially with this public art program. Um, and a lot of that um, 
kind of consists of conducting different like interviews with community members and um, really hearing what what people want to see, what they haven't been seeing, um, things that can really um, enhance safety uh, or anything of that sort. So just, you know, and then anytime we have any launch events, just come out and ensure that you're supporting the artists, you're supporting the work that we're doing. Um, and that will mean the world to all of us. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Crystal, for such a beautiful way to articulate our vision at BTC. Um, just for people who don't know what BTC is, it's the Black Indigenous Design Collective. We are centering our work around Black liberation, Indigenous sovereignty in um, mm -hmm. the special design fields in public art. And we most of our programming are around capacity building for youth and public mm -hmm. art that speaks to increasing, increasing the agency and visibility of Black Indigenous folks on MST territories. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to add before we part ways today? I'm just so glad I met you today. Oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. And thank you for this podcast and thank you for having me. Of course. And I'm just excited to be with you. Me too. <laughs> All right. Like, so uh, for the last little bit, I want to ask you how would you like the people who will listen to this to support you? Oh, oh my goodness. Support me. <laughs> um, you can follow me on, I'm, I, I try to limit only being active on one social media. So that's Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. so you can follow me on rocket queen. Oh three. Um, and my website, probably by the time this comes out, my website should officially mm -hmm. be published. So crystal Paraboo dot com and that's crystal with a k thank you very much um yeah you can just keep up with me that way and um maybe on my website you'll be able to see ways to donate to certain projects that i'm doing or do donate to certain initiatives that i'm involved in um or if you want to donate to me completing my master's degree you can also do that whatever yes. you feel for <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome thank you so much crystal for taking the time to be here with you today i really enjoyed our conversation thank you i hope we didn't nerd out too much but i had fun i, I had fun too <laughs> well i hope you enjoyed this episode of the design unmuted podcast brought to you by divine if you liked what you heard please rate and tell your friends about it you can subscribe so you never miss an episode. Find me on Instagram at Ramesha Design Unmuted and also on my website at www.rameshadesign.com. The track you're hearing is called Under the Sun by Kafaye, singer-songwriter and produced by Ozenit or Zenith by Kiga and Sanjan. Enjoy. Enjoy.